This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Grant, I know you're super excited for this episode. I am so excited for this episode. <laughs> we were looking at our case list and we were looking at the descriptions and it said drag queen and say no more. That's all I needed to hear. I was in. Grant loves drag queens. I do. I haven't <laughs> ruled out being one yet. So, you know, you never know. Yep. So let's just get right into this case because- Let's jump right into it. I'm so excited. Today we're going to be talking about Dorian Corey. Most people, if they recognize Dorian's name, it's because she was kind of a big character in a documentary from 1990 called Paris is Burning. And the documentary was about the LGBTQ community in the 80s in New York City, specifically like about the black and Latinx community. Exactly. And she was more than just in the documentary. Like her just- aura was so big in that community i didn't know about it but after watching the documentary and stuff you learn i mean and that's why i think i'm so excited is i got to learn about a like completely different lifestyle than anything i've ever thought to imagine yeah and like you said she was a huge influence on that major like drag and ball scene and everything so she's she was pretty big so Let's go back a little bit to her early life she was born frederick leg in buffalo new york in 1937 so you could see why she changed her name immediately. <laughs> Frederick Terrible isn't name. isn't uh, everyone's favorite name, so for sure. Yeah. Frederick Leg. It's like, yeah, okay. So growing up, she lived on a farm outside of town with her family, and she was funny and witty and dramatic and super talented. Everybody described her as like she could do anything that she put her mind to. And in her teen years, she got a job at a local department store as a window dresser. What exactly is a window dresser? Because I was watching the documentary and they didn't really go into it. Is it somebody who dresses mannequins in the window? That's what I've always known a window dresser as, is like dressing mannequins, setting scenes. Like in department stores back in the day, they used to have like these big windows in the front like that would draw people to come inside. And like at Christmas time, they would have Christmas, you know, decor in there and in the fall. So I assumed it was like that. Like they changed the outfits on the mannequins, but they also set the scene in the window. I didn't know that was like one person's job to do. I didn't, I never realized that. So Well, at a huge department store, it probably is. You think they change them each day? N- I don't know. I have no idea. I'd like more info on this. But either way, she was a natural born entertainer, though. So window dressing was not going to be it. She loved to make people laugh and be entertained. And she started doing drag at a, at a pretty young age, and especially for that time, you know, in the 50s. and Oh, definitely. It was not commonplace it wasn't common but she owned it like she went all out and really yeah um, that's why she's such a legend in this because she was one of the first people to say hey this is who i am this is what i'm going to be so by like the 1950s she had moved to new york city from buffalo to study fashion and design at parsons which is a pretty big deal all these like it's a huge design school like and you have to be pretty talented to get in there sounds like it wow yeah So she was a master seamstress and she made 
elegant and elaborate outfits, like whole productions of outfits. And she was so good at this. She was like known for her costumes. And she even had like in one of her shows that she did in one of her costumes, she had a cape that was 30 feet by 40 feet long. When she like stripped it off during her performance, she had like these helpers that would pull it over the audience and put it on these poles. And it turned into this like feathered tent over the audience. I know. I've been looking for pictures of it because it just sounds so cool. A feathered tent over the audience. Oh my God. I know. I was like, she was so extra. I love it. (laughs) I definitely think you and drag queens have a lot in common. Dude, I would have been such a good drag queen. Like, think about it. It's not too late. The nails, the hair, the lip singing, the whole production. I would have been (laughs) so good I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. I would have been so good. I'm telling you, it's not too late. Yeah. So by the 1960s, she was a snake dancer in a traveling cabaret drag show, which I would not be good at. No, thank you on the snakes. Yeah, (laughs) I saw pictures of that. And like, it's not a gigantic snake, but it's big enough to to say no thanks for sure. Yeah, it's alive. Yeah. (laughs) Right. That rules it out for me. (laughs) I like looking at snakes, but I wouldn't want to put one around my neck. It would probably kill me. No, hell no. So by the 70s and 80s, she was a really successful seamstress for the ball and drag community. And she was a huge figure in that whole ball culture. And for those of you who don't know what that is, I didn't either. And it's this elaborate production that they would throw kind of almost like a beauty pageant or the Olympics. I would definitely say the Olympics is probably the best way to describe it because what it is, it's it's all these different houses. So all of these different drag houses were coming together to compete and then there were awards and things like that so they had things like most butch and then they had ones that were most authentic woman yeah or like an executive or like a student but it was really like a giant party like a ball where everybody could just come and be who they wanted to be and be who they felt like they were and you could dress up or dress down like you said they had these different categories and you would what they call walk or compete in them and you could win prizes like it was fabulous they also got kind of heated too did you see any of those (laughs) moments yeah, yeah. They got kind of heated. But the coolest thing I think about this whole thing is it gave the LGBTQ plus community a place to go. You know, a lot of these people yeah. were out on the streets because their families wanted nothing to do with them. They said, you're not a part of this family or whatever the case was. So they found a home with these people. And that's why they have the house of Dupree or the house of Exotic or, right. um, you know, those kinds of things. The house of Corey. There's lots of different houses because- People were, t- were taken in, and it was a community that looked after each other. And like you said, Dorian was a house mother to the house of Corey, which was her house. And when I first heard this, I thought it was some sort of like fashion term. But the way Dorian explained it in the documentary was a house was like a gay street gang. So like you were saying, most of these kids didn't have supportive families or home lives. So they became each other's family and they would call it a house. And she was like the boss, you know. Of her house. And they all kind of took on that last name too. Yes. For people who watch RuPaul's Drag Race, there's people who compete in that and their last name is Dupree and they come from the house of Dupree. So this is still going on. Like it wasn't just for that time period. Yeah. But the way she explained it too was unlike street gangs that get their status through like violent fights and drugs and territory disputes and shit. They earned their status by winning categories at these balls. And Dorian was a champion. She had won over 50 grand prizes in her time in the ball scene 
the cool thing about this documentary too like it's not about Dorian by any means she's just a part of it but what they do do which I thought was really cool was they have her putting on makeup and getting drag ready so you see her go from what her normal look was Mm -hmm. to this big gigantic star you know with a wig and the makeup and the whole thing so it gives you kind of a a sneak peek as to like the process of what she does yeah totally and like you said the the documentary is not about her by any means it's about the whole scene in the 1980s but she was just a very interesting character in this documentary and she had super hilarious quotes and (laughs) one-liners and another really cool thing that I read was that she was the first drag queen to have her picture in the New York Times. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. After the documentary came out, Dorian continued to perform here and there. But in August of 93, she became pretty ill and she slipped into a coma. A couple days later, on August 29th, 1993, she passed away due to complications from the AIDS virus. So she passed away at Columbia Medical Center in New York City and she was only 56 years old. Which, unfortunately, I mean, this is the time where this was happening. This was when AIDS epidemic really ravaged the the gay community. It's devastating, obviously, for this community because she was such a huge influential character and she was obviously a lot of people looked up to her she was really a leader totally 100 percent. you know she was she like we said she was a legend or a titan of the industry i think that people still refer to her and talk about her as like the example of what to be right so that's a little background on Dorian Corey, who's kind of the main player in our case tonight. So before her death, Dorian told her friend Lois Taylor, once she had passed, she could take all of her costumes that she wanted and use them herself, give them away, sell them, do whatever she wanted to with them. Just and don't throw them away. Like, it, do something with them. Right. And it's important to note that while this was going on in her last days, Lois was the one who was taking care of her. So that was mm-hmm. part of why she was like, hey, take whatever you want, sell the rest. I don't care. Just take Take what you want for yourself. It was more or less her payment. Yeah. So about two months after Dorian passed, Lois took two men up to Dorian's apartment to let them look through the costumes and the outfits and stuff that they wanted to go through in her outrageous closet. Could you imagine 30 years of elaborate drag costumes? No. There was a lot. And by an expert seamstress, too, who probably didn't yeah. release everything that she had. So, yeah. And I don't know if this is true or not. Tell me if I'm wrong. But I did hear that the two men that she took were actually straight men who were mm-hmm. looking for capes <laughs> they wanted to wear capes yeah they and... were looking for a halloween <laughs> costume oh really oh see i didn't know that part i thought they were just looking for capes and i was like are these dudes dracula like why are they dressing up in capes yeah because she had passed in august and this was october so they were looking for halloween costumes is what i've heard hmm. and it was taking a while because most of her costumes were not what they were looking for <laughs> they were a little <laughs> more elaborate tail pieces and big feather boas <laughs> and jewels and, i mean they were a little much you know and they were like yeah this may not be our thing but they were kind of looking around poking around and they found a green like plaid garment bag sort of in the back of the closet and it was super duper heavy like too heavy to pick up they were like what the hell and Lois and them got excited thinking that it might be like some crazy beaded gown or some extravagant something because it was so heavy (laughs) And they quickly were not that excited anymore. (laughs) Yeah. They couldn't get it open, so they took some scissors and cut open the bag, and immediately a stench filled the room. Oh my gosh. And they knew what they had. No. At first, they said they thought it might have been a dead dog. I think that makes the most sense, yeah. It's a dead animal in the closet, although does anything make sense at this point? (laughs) 
Well, they ran from the apartment and called the police right away. And when the police arrived, they figured out the stench in the bag would turn out to be the partially mummified remains of a human. Which, for the record, (laughs) I would be much more offended if my friends went in my closet after I died, found a bag that stunk, and thought I had a dead dog in my closet. Well, they wouldn't have thought it would be a... Well, let me say, we would think it'd be a body, so... Well, I am much more likely to have a body in my closet than a dead dog. All right, I'll give you that. Like, I feel like that's very offensive, but anyway. That's well, especially when they the can't point. move. I mean, how big's that dog? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, it wasn't a dog. It was a human, and they were mortified. Like, everybody was like, what is going on here? So they started investigating, and the the police discovered that the remains were covered in baking soda and then wrapped tightly with naga hide and plastic and then taped up and then put in the garment bag. Which is why they were partially mummified. The chemical reaction in there, like, didn't do a great job, but it did an okay enough job, and it kind of mummified the body. But only partially, which made it really hard because the body was... Partially decomposed and partially mummified. So it's extremely delicate. Extremely delicate and it's soupy is what the investigators yeah. were talking about. Like, no thank you. I don't want to walk up on a dead body in any capacity. No. I especially do not want to walk up on a soupy dead body. Yeah. So they have to go through this crazy drying process and all kinds of stuff before they can even really examine the remains or what's with the remains or how the person died, blah, blah, blah. So eventually they get the fingerprints and they had to do it like really awfully. They had to like cut them off and then like dehydrate them and then like rehydrate them and then put a real hand inside of them. It was really bad. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because that's what I heard too. So they cut off each finger just mm-hmm. below the second knuckle. And then mm-hmm. the way that this process happened and- the medical examiner wouldn't even go into all the details on how it happened. He said it was his like special way. But yeah, which I'm like, way to be a gatekeeper, dick. Like, that could help <laughs> other people. That's I didn't like that. I was like, what a jerk. I agree with you, except I've kind of from listening and learning kind of about this. Everybody kind of has their own technique to do it. So it's not like it's a hidden thing. It's just he has his own technique, which I don't know, but maybe it does. Maybe it's kind of shady. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. He had to rehydrate these fingers and then basically had to take the outer layer of skin off of them, Mm -hmm. put a plastic or a a glove on his hand and then put Mm -hmm. the finger casings back onto his hand so he could take the prints and roll them for the police. Yeah, that's that's ridiculous. I mean, I'm so super glad they did it, but it's like, oh, uh, I don't that's too much detail for our podcast. You have to have your own special mindset to get into this kind of job. Like, you have to be willing to look at things yeah. and do things nobody else would be willing yeah, to. Yeah, cuz we could talk about it all day long and we could hear about it all day long, but you couldn't actually do it. No. Like that's that's too much going on. Do you think you could watch somebody do this? Do you think you could watch somebody like take the skin off and put it on their hand? In a movie, yes. In real life, probably I would throw it. <laughs> See, I, I want to say that I could, but I don't know that I could. Yeah. So eventually they get these fingerprints and they sort through all the evidence in the bag. And with the remains, all they found, a pair of blue and white boxer shorts and like a 
part of a sleeve of a t-shirt and some old poppy tops from like sodas and beer cans that kind of fell out of the bag with it. So not much super helpful. And with those pop tops, that kind of helped them determine how long the body had been in there because they had been from decades before, like 70s, probably at the latest that these pop tops were yeah. used. So that's kind of how they helped determine how long it was. But I mean, in my mind, that's not super helpful because those could have just been in a bag for any reason. I don't know why anybody would be saving them, but... Yeah, but they could have been in the bag from the 70s and then the body was put in there later. So they don't really... It doesn't really date the body, but it does give you hints, exactly, you know? Exactly, yeah. So then eventually they identify the remains as Robert Worley. And this would turn out to be kind of the thing that goes, oh, okay, it has been there for years. <laughs> because he had been missing since 1968. So... This body could have been there for possibly like 25, 30 years. Like that's a long time. It's a very long time for a body just to be sitting in a dark closet. Yeah. And they look into Worley's past and he also went by the name Robert Wells. So as we know on this podcast, aliases are usually never good. (laughs) That's true. Like people don't just have a lot of aliases for fun. Although one of us on this podcast has three aliases. So (laughs) (laughs) that's true. I do. Like I said, as it turns out, Robert Worley's been missing since 1968, but missing is a stretch. He hadn't been seen since 1968, but a total of zero people were missing him. (laughs) Yeah. Robert sucked in every way you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And when he went missing, everyone was kind of like, good, hope he stays missing. Which is funny because usually when people end up like dead or murdered, they like turn into a saint all of a sudden. And it's always like, oh, they lit up a room and they were so happy, (laughs) blah, 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 blah. Not this guy. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, who gives a shit? Including his family. Most of all, they're like, yeah, he sucks. (laughs) Yeah. This is great. Because I remember one time on this podcast, I was saying something about how, oh, she was wonderful and this and that. And you're like, does anybody ever say they weren't? (laughs) Like, it's always, they were the greatest and they were the life of the party and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, here's the one where they said he wasn't. Nailed it. Yeah. So Robert had been arrested in 1963 for kidnapping, rape, and assault. Because it was 1963 and everything sucked, he only served three years in prison for that. It's a lawless land. Yeah. But that's how they got the hit on the fingerprints was from when he was arrested for that. So when they start tracking down his relatives and stuff and like when was the last time you saw him, they interviewed his brother. Even his brother was like, yeah, I'm not surprised he's dead. He was going to get into it with somebody at some point. His brother said that after he had gotten out of prison, he had moved in with him and his wife and kids after he got released. And he was like a raging alcoholic and he would drink a bottle of vodka a day. He had major anger issues. He'd fight with everybody. And he says that while Robert was living with them, he started like kind of pursuing suing a woman in the neighborhood and when she turned him down apparently he decided to beat up her seven-year-old son yeah that gives you an idea of this guy and why no one's really sorry that he's gone yeah so apparently after he did this and she went to the authorities this is when he like boned out and his family never saw him again which i'm sure the sister-in-law was like oh my god thank god yeah i'm sure everybody around (laughs) i mean being that brother i mean i could just see him just throwing his hands up in the air like i'm so sorry i brought this into our, our lives Everybody, I am so, so yeah, sorry. What, what a nightmare. Oh, yeah. After he boned out, his family never saw him again. They did hear from him a few times. Like, he had called a couple of times. In fact, his brother said one time he called very intoxicated, and it seemed like he didn't realize that he called his brother. He thought he was calling his girlfriend. And from what his brother surmised from this story was that possibly his girlfriend was a transgender woman. That's quite the phone call to get. Yeah, but... 
I would like his brother said he just kind of let him talk and listen, and he was like, "Oh, this is juicy gossip." <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, that's what I would do. If he was wasted and just spilling his guts, I'd be like, and then what? (laughs) (laughs) So that's pretty much where the story ends. We don't know why this really amazing, loving, funny, non-violent icon of a woman had a mummy in her closet with a bullet in his head. We do have some theories, though. Oh, did we even say? No. During the autopsy, I don't think I mentioned that. During the autopsy, they found a 22 caliber bullet inside his head. So that was obviously the cause of death. And Dorian did own a 22 caliber pistol. Yes, she did. So there's only really a few theories on this case and how this happened. And only a couple of them make sense anyway. Yeah. So one one theory that I heard that's kind of like, ah, probably not, was that the body was there when she moved in. Right? I think this is the stupidest theory out there, but we it's important to say because it is a major theory, so go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the theory, is that the body was in her closet when she moved in and she just moved all her shit in around it. It's like, I'm pretty sure she would have opened that. And wh- why wouldn't you, one, open it? Two, why, if you did open it, why wouldn't you tell the cops? Like, that's not yours. Why would you want to deal with that? Yeah, you haven't even moved in yet. Right. And also, does anybody move into apartments where there's already things in them? Like, I mean, I guess if it was a furnished apartment, but I don't know. That theory doesn't make a lot of sense to me because if she had moved into an apartment and there was a body in the closet or even just a heavy ass garment bag, wouldn't you be like, oh, does this have a million dollars in it? I'm going to check. Absolutely. I would be finding out what's in there because. Yeah. I want to know. Is it money? Can I sell it? Is it a body? I need to tell somebody else about it. Like, what's going on with this? Is it Patsy Klein's missing dress? Like, oh, God. Did we talk about what was top in the country charts in this episode? Oh, I didn't. It was Easy Come, Easy Go by George Strait. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So, that's one of the theories. And I don't think that a body being in the closet when she moved in is a very good theory. But it is one. Another one is that somebody else put it in there while she was in the hospital or after she had passed away. And this is a big theory because a lot of people think that the woman who found the body, her caretaker and her friend, might actually be the one who killed it. But this doesn't make sense to me either. It doesn't make sense for a few reasons. Um, Yeah. I think the biggest one being why would she just be toting around, like carrying this body around? Like, you know, it's, yep. it's a body in a soupy. Yeah. hundred percent. That is the number one reason. If she had that body somewhere for 20 something years and had to move it, why would she move it to somebody else's house? Why wouldn't she just throw it in the Hudson river? Yeah. Like if she already had to move it because there's a lot of people in New York city, like you can't walk anywhere alone. I don't think how are you going to lug around a body? Yeah. It doesn't make much sense. No. And she even told police, I'm only 135 pounds. I can't move that heavy thing. Yeah. Which is what a lot of people point out is her like deflecting. Like, I'm so tiny. I can't carry that. (laughs) I I think it's more of a, look how I can't do it. Like, look at me. I can't do it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So another theory is that she might have killed him to defend a friend or a house member because most everybody described her as not violent at all but she was fierce especially about the people she loved yep. and you don't cross her that was another thing with her too is you, yeah like she was smart loving kind all those things but it was also well known you don't mess with her right or anybody she loved or cared right. about so maybe he did something to somebody that she loved and then she did something to him you know i don't necessarily think 
think that one you could just dismiss as easy as the other ones, but I still don't think it's the most likely. It's exactly how I feel. I think that it makes sense for the character that we come to learn of her, of who she is, and like she would kind of come to anyone's rescue and whatnot. But Mm -hmm. the more that you know about her and this situation and all those things, it doesn't it doesn't make the most sense. Yeah. So another pretty strong theory is that Robert was a bad guy. I mean, (laughs) we know that he was a rapist. He was a kidnapper. He beat up seven year olds like he was a shitty guy. Totally. And Dorian lived in a shit neighborhood in New York City in the 80s. Like in one of the interviews that they ended up cutting from that documentary, but you could see it on the internet everywhere. She's literally giving an interview to the documentary crew. And all of a sudden there's just like gunshots everywhere outside of her apartment. And she just kind of is like, shoot out in the OK Corral. Well, which is interesting, too, because that was shot in her apartment. In her apartment. And this was released in 1990. So. There's a body in her closet right then, but that's kind of the case in point. Nobody knew that there was a body in there. People came and went from her her apartment all the time. All the time. She had an ex-boyfriend who came over and he said, we came over frequently. And I say we, because he had a German shepherd that he would bring with him. And he even said, he's like, I nor my German shepherd were ever alerted about this. Yeah. I mean, that's why people think the theory that it was put there after she died, you know, because nobody ever smelled anything. Nobody ever noticed anything. Although if it was wrapped that tightly and then in plastic and then in the garment, bed, like maybe you wouldn't smell it. With baking soda. Yeah. I don't know, but I think Dorian was really, really talented in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And I think one of those things may have included how to keep smells from permeating places. Yeah. Because why else? Why not? Yeah. So in that interview with the documentary, like the gunshots went off and they were like, oh, my God, was that gunshots? And she's like, yeah, you didn't hear all the people running. Like She was a cool, calm and like, but she lived in a bad neighborhood. They even turned off the cameras and they were like, we need to go make sure everybody's okay." And she was just teasing her hair and doing her like she didn't even skip a beat. So this theory is that he maybe broke into her apartment to either rob her or attack her. And she shot him in self-defense. And then she didn't report it because this is the 60s 70s we don't know when this took place but it was decades before it was found in anywhere but in new york city at that time you know she was black she was transgender she lived in a bad neighborhood like i mean she probably wasn't gonna call the cops the cards were not stacked in her favor by any means and no even if it was self-defense oh and i think it 100 was self-defense i don't think she went on the offensive Yeah, so in this, like you said, in this theory, it's self-defense, but she didn't report it. This theory comes about because obviously it makes sense, but also there's a rumor that there was a note found in the garment bag that says, he broke into my apartment, I shot him. It was self-defense. But the cops say this note doesn't exist or they've never seen it if it does exist. So that could just be a rumor. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really what it is cops say they've never seen anything about this but the people who found the body say that there was a note in there and that they gave it to the police but the police say they they don't have it never seen it yeah which i mean the police lose shit all the time so i don't know or happily and people make shit up all the time (laughs) yeah that's true too (laughs) so who knows Another theory is that Dorian and Robert might have been dating, whether openly or secretively, because none of her friends know anything about him, but it had been decades before. Yeah. And so this theory kind of goes down the path of either they were hush-hush dating because he wasn't 
out in the open about this and he abused her and you know because he was a bad guy he was a violent guy he was a really bad person yeah maybe she didn't go to the police for the same reasons like she shot him in self-defense but how can she prove that or they're not going to believe her you know exactly that's kind of that theory or he was pressuring her to get a sex change and then it turned into a violent altercation and she killed him because after the body was found another friend says that she found a play or a script that Dorian had written about a trans woman whose abusive partner wanted her to get a sex reassignment surgery and she didn't want it. I had heard that too and I wasn't sure so I wanted to ask you about that so I'm glad that you brought that up because it seems like that was probably not so much of a story as it was a real life scenario. (laughs) Autobiography? Yeah, Yeah. No kidding but yeah I would also venture to guess that this probably wasn't the first interaction of this caliber that she's ever had before too. You think she killed other people? No, 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 no. I don't mean she had to kill other people. Sorry. I mean, I assume that she probably dated other people who wanted her to change her genitalia to match her pronouns. What they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And supposedly in this little script or whatever, I don't know if it was a play or a script or what, but supposedly they fought about this because she didn't want to do that. And... She killed him in self-defense after they were fighting about this. But the cops also say they've never seen this script (laughs) or this screenplay or whatever it was. I don't know. Story. I don't know if it was a novel. Whatever. Yeah. Short story. Why not? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a likely scenario. I mean, just like in that documentary, not every trans woman wants to have reassignment surgery. Like, that's up to each individual person. Right. And if she wanted it, she seemed like she did whatever she wanted. So if she wanted that, she would have done it. (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, she seemed like she did whatever the hell she wanted to. She did. If she she wanted wanted something, she figured out how to make it happen. And not only that, she did it at a very high level. She's really a lot like you. Yeah. There's a lot about you and Dorian that, that are very similar. Yeah. I can tell you right now, because I record our podcast in my closet, there is not room for a body in here. <laughs> <laughs> so, unlike Dorian, I didn't have a bitch in closet. I do have feathers in here, though. <laughs> Just for the record. So you're not too far off. Nope. So that is the story of Dorian Corey and the mummy she had in her closet, and we don't know why. And we'll never know why, because... Dorian was able to keep this a secret until her grave. So. Yeah, Which yeah. also seems kind of very Dorian, too, to kind of be like, all right, now that I'm gone, you guys deal with it. I covered it up for however many years. You guys figure it out. Yeah, she did kind of leave like a mystery about it, huh? Yeah. I mean, that's obviously a big one, but she didn't lead on at, to this at all. Nobody knew. Nobody had any idea. <laughs> there was no smell. There was just a partially mummified, soupy body in her closet. It was just what she had. And she, like I said, she, they filmed this in her house. She had no qualms about people coming over. Yeah. Yeah. She had a film crew in her house. Yeah. And just like, mm, whatever. And she was a professional seamstress for the drag community. People were over all the time. All the time getting fitted for costumes and shit. Like, she's like, yeah, whatever. She, people were probably in her closet all the time. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be yeah. surprised. The other thing that was really interesting to me about this case, we talked about the medical examiner guy that was kind of a dick for gatekeeping his system for fingerprinting or whatever. Uh He also made a weird comment when a reporter asked him, do you think that the person wrapped the body in leather on purpose, like to emulate the Egyptian mummification process? Yeah. And he literally was like, oh, no, people just wrap bodies in whatever's around and then 
wrap it again and wrap it again until the smell goes away, put some baking soda on it, wrap it again and put it in the closet. And then you just kind of look at it sometimes and hope it goes away. I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I think he's talking about something that he knows. <laughs> Honestly, I, I know. I think that this happens way more than we think. Yeah. People just put them in their closet and like hope it goes away. But at the same time, he's a medical examiner in New York City. Right. He sees it all the time. I'm not saying everybody has this, but he sees it all the time. But I was thinking about why. It's New York City. What are you going to do? You're going to carry a body down 19 flights of stairs out onto a street with millions of people? Even if you own a car, which you probably don't, Right. you have to walk past 300 people from your apartment to your car, put a body in your trunk, and then take nine hours to get six blocks to try to throw it in a river where there's four billion people standing around. <laughs> like, what are you gonna do with a body? That's why. The, that's why she put it in the closet. What are you gonna do? It's not like where I live, where I can back my truck into my garage and put it in there. You know what I mean? And go out to the desert and be gone in ten minutes. Like, yep. that's why people just leave bodies in the streets in New York because it's like, what are you gonna do? We can't move them around, and they're heavy. So. We can't carry them forever. Yeah. And everything is nine floors up. I mean, I see why she put it in the closet because it's like, what? What was her other option? I don't know, <clears throat> but she knew what to do and how to preserve it. Yeah, which is crazy. Although that could have been accidental. That could have just been like, well, baking soda gets the smell out of my fridge, so maybe this will work. And then that didn't work, so she wrapped it in leather. And then that didn't work, so she wrapped it in plastic, you know? That could be. Yeah, you're totally right. That totally could be. Yeah. Or maybe she did look and see, you know, what Egyptians used to do for for bodies to keep them <laughs> smelling. The only thing that I will say, though, that I think is kind of weird is that she was a house mother to all these, like, young, able-bodied people. Like, she probably could have got a couple of them to help her move this body. Yeah. But although she was trying to set a good example for them, too, and put them on a right path, so maybe she wasn't going to be like, hey, help me I think that's exactly body. right because, <laughs> yeah. you know, we know that people... People in this community are often, you know, the ones who get the book thrown at the hardest. So she probably didn't want to involve anybody else and have them, you know, get caught and be up Shit's Creek without a paddle because of her. All right. Well, until next week, guys, don't Don't forget forget to change change your (laughs) Amazon. I was going to steal it from you. Go ahead. It's your thing. Go for it. Don't forget to change your Amazon smile donation to DNA Doe Project. We do have a link in our Instagram for anyone who does want to donate to the DNA Doe Project, though. Oh, that's right. We did figure out how to do something social media. Yep. We figured out how to share a link. (laughs) As usual, it was you, but we figured it out nonetheless. Go us. Yep. Well, I'll call you later, buddy. Okay. I love you. Love you. Bye.